like for you to go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Pastor Ryan read for us our text. The major text that I want us to look at though is in verse 5 where the Apostle Paul said it was his desire to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. May the Spirit of the Lord apply these words to our heart this morning. Holy God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The battle is always raging around us. Psalm 2 portrays to us the nation's rage. The rulers of the earth have gathered together against the Lord and His anointed. There's spiritual wickedness in high places. The battle is real. We face it every day. But thank God concerning those of us who are in Christ that we can approach this battle from the standpoint of a great victory. As the Word of God teaches us in the book of Romans that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. That because we are in Christ, we have the ability to put on all the accoutrements of Christ, and that is the very armor of God. That we are encouraged in Ephesians 6 to walk in truth, to walk in righteousness, to walk in faith and in love as we have this glorious salvation. We apply the helmet of salvation. We live in the light and in the truth of the Word of God. And yes, sometimes we are called upon to wield that Word of God as it is, the sword of the spirits, as we fight the affront of the evil one every day. And then we're called upon, as we put on the full armor of God, to be in prayer in the Spirit of God as we engage the enemy. That's what the Apostle Paul says here in verse 4, that we are not fighting a fleshly battle, but indeed a battle that is just as real. The weapons of our warfare in verse 4 are not carnal, but they are mighty in God. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters? Do you believe that you have all that you need in Christ Jesus to wage this battle? You see, if you're a Christian, you are fully and completely equipped. For in the fullness of Christ dwells all of the deity of the Godhead bodily. 
And we are in Him, and of His fullness we have received. Along with the weapons of this warfare, we can be strong because our weapons are mighty in God, he says there, for the casting down of the enemy's strongholds. Those barriers, those barricades, that onslaught that Satan is always bringing before us. What are these these strongholds. Well, that's any system, any scheme, any structure, any strategy that the evil one can bring against us. But we are called upon because we have the mighty armor of God to cast them down when they confront us, to, to demolish them, to destroy them. Because our weapons are mighty in God. We have the ability in Christ to cast down the strongholds, as well as cast down the arguments. That's anything that is waged against us, anything that would seek to bring us down, the arguments, the innuendos, the insults, whatever it may be that come to us from the evil one. Casting down arguments in every high thing every high thing that stands against us. Think of that word high thing you think about. I thought about the Tower of Babel where the people in the book of Genesis built a high tower in the face of God because they felt like they could stand in opposition to God. They could form this their views, their philosophies, their views. They could make them known. A high tower. Sometimes the children of Israel, when they disobeyed the Lord, they would go unto the high places where they worshiped false idols. In Christ, we have the ability, by the grace of God, to cast down every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. That's, that is, in fact, every lofty opinion, any speculation that would raise its ugly head before the truth of God. And brothers and sisters, if there ever was a time in the evangelical church that we need to rely upon these truths and not looking to any precept of man, any philosophy of man, any good idea, any plan, program, or whatever it may be, all of these things shall fail. The only thing that's going to last is that we live in, appropriate the knowledge of God in order that these high things might be brought down, in order that these strongholds may be broken down. When Jesus was confronted by Satan, what did He appeal to? He appealed to the truth of His Father's Word. And He said three times, It is written. We appeal to the Word of God. And then the Apostle Paul says here, and this is the place I want to make camp here this morning, is that in doing this, we are to... Listen to this verse here, the latter part of verse 5, that we are to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of of Christ. What a challenge. When we're tempted by our thoughts to not let them flee out of our mind, 
but concentrate on what we're thinking and take that thought, whether it be a myriad of thoughts or one thought, and seek to make that thought obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Scripture says that every, every idle word which men speak shall be held against them in the day of judgment. But those idle words begin with thoughts. You've got to think that before you speak that, right? So how much more should we be concerned about our thought process? There is a way which seems right unto man. You see, here are those, those ways, those opinions, those, those thoughts come in, those lofty opinions, those, that speculation, that, that human judgment, that wisdom in our own estimation. There's a way which seem right unto man, but the ways thereof are the ways of death. Wow! What a task we have before us to examine our thoughts before the Lord. Well, I want you to see now in the next few minutes, we're going to delve into some texts where the Apostle Paul does this very thing. Because Paul, sadly enough, was waging a war against some there in the Corinthian church who were charging him with various insults. For example... They said that the Apostle Paul was untrustworthy because Paul had first intended to make one long visit, but instead he decided to make two short visits. Look in chapter 11 and verse 5. Now I want you to hang with me here in the next 10 minutes or so as we... We look at how Paul defends the truth and applies to the knowledge of God to cast down these arguments that are raised against him. Paul says, For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. (laughs) Now, there's a little bit of sarcasm going on here because Paul is referring to the fact that there were those in the midst there at Corinth who thought that they were rather eminent. Quite prestigious. And Paul says there then, I consider, dear brothers, that I'm not at all inferior to those whom you may be deeming as very eminent, these super apostles. No, he wasn't trained in Greek oratory. He did not speak with the tongues of men and angels. And he says here in verse 6, And even though I am untrained in, in speech, he admits, yet I am not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. He says, Have you not seen God work through me and the other servants that has been in your midst? Look at uh, verse 7. 
Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted? See, Paul had no pompous agenda that he tried to get across to the Corinthian church. He was not there to exalt himself. I humbled myself before you because I preached the gospel to you free of charge. You know, the other, uh, these false, these super apostles thought that they were worthy of remuneration. I said, no, I didn't, I didn't look for, for anything from you. He says, by the way, in verse 8, I have robbed other churches, taking from them in order that I might minister to you. So you see, you see the arguments here that the Apostle Paul is bringing against the accusations that were issued towards him? It needed to be answered. Let's keep going. Look in chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 17. Paul said, For we are not as so many peddling the Word of God. What a statement he makes there. Because in fact, these eminent apostles, these false teachers were doing that very thing. They were, you see, they were in a business for themselves. This word peddling here in the original text carries with it the thought of being in business and carrying on unscrupulous practices in that business. It can be traced to those who would make wine, wine makers, or those that would acquire wine. Maybe they would buy some wine. And you know what they would do? They would, according to this, this word, they would, they would dally with it. They would, they would peddle with it. In other words, they would, they would buy it or make it themselves. In order to make a bigger profit, they would dilute it in order that they could sell it. They cheapen the source and try to make more money off of it. The Apostle Paul says here, we are not in that kind of business. We are not peddling the Word of God. We are not diluting the Word of God. We seek to take nothing from the Word of God. Which the false apostles were doing that very thing. You see. But he says, but as of sincerity... But as from God, we speak in the sight of Christ. The Lord knows my heart. And He knows my sincerity. And He knows I am speaking forth to you the very truth of God. Chapter 3 now, and verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? That's what the false apostles wanted. They wanted a pat on the back. They wanted to be commended. Paul said, do you see us doing that? Do you see us fishing for compliments? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? And this is another thing that these high-standing eminent teachers required. Letters to commend them concerning who they were or what they are doing. Paul said, no, I don't need any of that foolishness. I don't need letters of commendation from you or to you because, dear saints at Corinth, look at your life right now. 
Look at verse 2. You, you brethren, are our epistle written in our hearts. You see the love of the Apostle Paul for these people? You are a living epistle. You are in our hearts. You are known and read by all men. See what God has done in your midst. There's the results. The proof is in the pudding. Verse 3. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Wow. Look at verse 2 of verse four, chapter 4. Paul says, chapter 4, verse 2, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame. We don't rely upon these silly methodologies. These ways to play on your emotion. We don't rely upon being puffed up in the flesh, being made a spectacle. Any of these silly things that we see going on much today in evangelical circles. Programs and plans and all kinds of ridiculous things to draw people in. We could go on and on and on, right? An easy believe gospel that is easy to say, oh yes, I'm a Christian, and now let me hear more and more about this feel-good theology, this gospel of health and wealth. On and on. What's wrong with the evangelical church today? Well, I think this is much of the problem right here because we have not renounced hidden things of shame. We look to all these foolish methods and schemes and strategies instead of relying upon the Word of God. Paul says, just as these false apostles were doing, we are not walking in this kind of craftiness, nor are we handling the Word of God deceitfully but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. You see, I have nothing to give to you this morning. Nothing. The only thing I can give to you is the hope that I am interpreting this Word of God and I am portraying to you as it is. That is the Word of God that's going to build up your hearts. It's not anything that I can do. He says in verse 5, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservant for the sake of Jesus Christ. It's not about me. I can absolutely do nothing to bring about any change in any heart here. It must come from the Word of God. I can't no more bring it about than I can go outside on the darkest of nights and call out, let there be light. What's going to happen? Nothing's going to happen. But this God who speaks, when He created the world, He said, let there be light. And God made the light out of nothing. You see, that's the work of God. That's what Paul says here in verse 6. You see, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts. Why? Because the preacher was smart? Because the preacher had a plan? Because the preacher was eloquent? No, because it says here, God did it into the hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a work of God or it's not any work at all. 
We can't do it. Look at verse 4 of chapter 4. You see, the God of this age has blinded men who do not believe. These people that are blind, they're so blind, they don't even, they don't even know they're blind. Can any human restore the sight to the blind? Can any human take a man who's dead and raise him to life? Absolutely not. It's got to be a work of God. We can plant, we can water, but if God does not give the increase, it is all in vain. Paul is appealing to these brothers and sisters, do you not see the work that God has done through us? You are living epistles as to what God has done. It's not about credentials. It's not about degrees or pedigree or what we have to offer. None of this at all. It's about what God is doing. So, we could go on. Let's let's look uh, quickly at chapter 10. Paul said, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you. I'm pleading with you that we come to this understanding by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. And then again, he gets a little sarcastic here. Who in presence am lowly among you? You see, they were saying these things about Paul. They said, you know, Paul, he's really bold in his letters, but in person he doesn't amount to much. Paul says, yes. Who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you? That's what they were saying about Paul. But Paul says, don't misunderstand me, verse 2, but I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some. You see the word some there? This was not the whole church at Corinth that had gone astray. It was just a few bad apples that were spoiling the whole bunch, you see. And he says, no, I can be bold with you, and I will be bold with you if it needs to be. Because he says here in verse 6, I am ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience has been fulfilled. And by the grace of God, the majority of the church at Corinth was broken when they heard these words. And they had come to a place of repentance. We get a little hint of that in chapter 7 of verse 7. Let's go ahead and read verse 6. Nevertheless, God who comes to downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by His coming, but also by the consolation with which He was comforted in you. Titus was comforted as he went to the church of Corinth and he conveyed this back to Paul that what? Latter part of verse 7. When he told us of your earnest desire and your mourning and your zeal for me, I rejoiced even the more. They heard the word of the Apostle Paul and they were encouraged by it. They, they listened to his arguments that demolished the strongholds, that teared down the, the, the high accusations that were raised against Paul. And again, why is Paul defending himself? Because his feelings were hurt? No, because he was an Apostle of God, sent with the message of God, doing the work of God, and the 
people at Corinth need to understand the truth of God. That's why he defended himself. It wasn't about him, but he was defending the very Word of God and this peace was restored. Okay, now, let's take this the way the Apostle Paul dealt with these arguments and apply it to our own life. Paul took these thoughts and he examined them and he made his own argument against them. Brothers and sisters, that's what we need to be doing every day in our life. Because we're assaulted with me, aren't we? By thoughts that come into our head. And they can change us or we can change them. We're to take every thought captive. Spurgeon wrote many sayings concerning thoughts in his John Plowman talks. How many of you ever heard of John Plowman? Oftentimes Spurgeon would take this pen name when he wrote little quips and wise sayings under the the guise of John Plowman. And in this particular writing of Spurgeon, he has some thoughts on thoughts. This is some of the things he says. We have more thoughts in an hour than there are hours in a year. A grain of sand is very light in and of itself. But as Solomon said, a heap of sand is very heavy. Many thoughts, especially those ungodly thoughts, can be very heavy in our minds and can weigh us down, whether they're conscious or whether they're unconscious things. You know, we can be weighed down. Spurgeon says there are many birds that fly in the air and we can't do nothing about the birds that are flying in the air, but we can keep them from building a nest on top of our heads. You see, We have to consider these thoughts and how they're influencing us or how we are warring against them. A thought that heaven or hell shall reveal the thoughts of all of us, will it not? Those in hell will say, well, I am here because this is all I thought of. There is no room in the thoughts of the wicked for the things of God. And they will live in a place of torment apart from God. Those that will enter into the glories of heaven, what are we going to do? We're going to continue. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning that we're going to continue doing the same things we're doing here. We're going to be thinking about the things of God, the glory of God, the, the truth of God. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. We, we say that you are what you eat, but more so, we are what we think. The Scripture says here that yes, indeed, we're to 
Take every thought captive. The word captive there is a military term and it's talking about when the thoughts come, we build a fortress against them. We build a siege work so that our thoughts are contained. They become our prisoner so that we can go to war against them. We're taking captive every thought so that we can destroy those evil lies that come against us, that we can quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. Whatever they may be. Yes, we take them captive. See, we don't compromise with our thoughts. It was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones that said that we spend too much time listening to ourselves rather than preaching to ourselves. When these thoughts fester, they they become problems to us. They weigh us down. They cause all kinds of problems. No, we take them captive. We don't give them any compromise, no truce, no quarter. Just like the, the children of Israel that entered into the land of Canaan, what were they to do with those that were wicked idolaters in the land of Canaan? Well, you know, let, let's come together and let, let's talk about this. See if you, you can change. No, they were to kill every man, woman, and child. They were to purge the evil that was in their midst. Why were they to do that? Because these persons and their offspring, especially if they were intermarriage, they would be thorns in the side of Israel. And indeed, they were because they did not totally complete that task. In a like manner, we are to go to war against the thoughts. Calvin said, the liberty of the human mind must be restrained and bridled. Get a grip on it. That it might not be wise apart from the teachings of Christ. Those thoughts that come into my head, what do we do? We've got to run them through the Scriptures. Are they holding up? Are they true? Or whatever's going on. So oftentimes. Dear brothers and sisters, we take these thoughts, consciously or unconsciously, they get into our heads. You know what I'm talking about. And they're like ruts. You get in this rut, and this thought comes to you day in and day out, and you keep driving in this rut. Another metaphor, they can be like uh, something that's been recorded, and you play it over and over and over again in your head. And they weigh you down and they keep you from being productive in the kingdom of God. No, we're not to do that. We're to take these thoughts captive, demolish them, and apply the Word of God to them so that they do not stand. And some of the ways, now let's look at some of the ways that we need to be doing that in a specific way in our life. One thing is to fight against false doctrine. We've just read here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6 that the Apostle Paul was ready to punish those who refused to be obedient. Now what does that mean? He's going to not allow them to be in the presence. They're going to be out of the church. They're going to be put out of the church. Because they are what they are. They're false teachers. They're like, you know, if someone gets cancer, what's the one thing you need to do with that cancer? You need to have it completely removed. You know? And if you do have surgery for that, 
That's the one thing that that surgeon is concerned about. To get every bit of it. Because if you don't, what happens? That little bit of remaining cancer will breed and infect the whole body again. Paul says, I am ready to punish every act of disobedience. What do we do? What do we do? Why? Because what were the people at Corinth to be doing? Well, they were to be taking every thought, every confrontation captive. And that those thoughts came from persons who were against the Lord. And to punish every act of disobedience. To the contrary, what do we do? We take every thought captive. Especially concerning doctrine. As we were speaking about this past week uh, with a few of you, uh, I believe it was Bodie Bauckham that says, if you don't understand doctrine and theology, how can you confront false teachers? There you go. We take the Word of God and we apply it to this and to this and this. Every situation, every thought that comes into our being. So what are some other ways? Well, one way I thought of was that, and again, these, these, these people at Corinth, these false teachers, they, were not, they did, were not intelligent enough or knew the Scriptures well enough to come against the Apostle Paul with anything of weight. So instead of having a true argument against the Apostle Paul, what did they do? They criticized him. You know, ah, he's not much to look at. His way, his letters are weighty, but in person, you know, and his preaching is his preaching uh, it amounts to nothing. That's what they said about him. Okay, and Paul was he was a he was short fellow, about five foot bald. It was in true in a sense he wasn't a whole lot to look at. But he says we have the knowledge of God, and that knowledge has been manifested to you. Okay, what about us? Well, some some of us. We're not the best to look at either, are we? Maybe. No, no. All our women here are beautiful, and all our men are above average. That's just getting okay. Speak for yourself. Okay. Um, ladies, I guess I'm going to speak to you more pointedly here today. Because ladies are oftentimes more concerned with their looks instead of instead of men. That's usually the case. And how many times have you heard a, a young lady or young woman being taken out of the game of serving in the kingdom of God because they think I, I don't match up. I'm not beautiful. I'm a little too thin. I'm a little too heavy. I'm a little too this. I'm a little too that. And because they have a poor self-image of themselves, they don't experience the life that God wants them to experience. And modern psychology looks at this and they say, oh well, it's such a pity that you have such a poor self-image. You need to lift your own self-image up so that you feel better about yourself. No, the problem is is that you yourself have become so consumed with yourself that you have become an idolater. 
You are so wrapped up in who you are or who you you are not that you are not serving the Lord because you are so, so concerned about you. Rather, you need to have, again, what do you do? You take the Word of God, you hold that thought captive, and you apply the Word of God in this particular sense. Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 30, Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing. You're not going to keep it that long anyway. <laughs> but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. God is the one who looks at the heart. When you stand before the Lord, young ladies, on the day of judgment, He's not going to worry about how pretty you were or how uh, prim and proper you were, but He's going to be concerned about you if you were a woman of God who feared Him, loved Him, and honored Him. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You'll have to turn there, verses 9 and 10. Women are to adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and discretion, not with the braiding of hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women, women professing godliness and good works. Now I want you to look at my wife. She's not wearing any makeup this morning. So she deserved to be prayed. Actually, she said this morning, Oh my goodness, I forgot my makeup. I said, that's good. That may apply. Now, what it's talking about here is extravagance, okay? You're, you're making yourself up in order that you might be looked upon. Nothing wrong with wearing some jewelry, some makeup. But you don't become extravagant in it, do you? No, what you are concerned on is that your profession of godliness and your good works is what is seen in your life before men and before God rather than your outward adornment. That's what Peter says. Chapter, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4, Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Not so concerned about what you look like, but how you appear before the Lord in your day-to-day life. That's what you ought to be concerned about. And men, we can be in the same predicament, can we not? We can be consumed about ourselves as well. So I don't let you off the hook completely either. Then another area which we are prone to receive the fiery darts of the wicked one is when we are accused of or that we feel like we just don't have the proper ability or the proper talents that we need to do the work of God. Again, that's what they were saying about Paul. You're not very eloquent, Paul, when you speak. You're not trained like we are. But you know, Paul did not rely upon his own credentials. You know what he said to the Corinthians? He said, who is sufficient for such a task? It's impossible for a mere man to do the work of God. Yes, we plant, we water, but if God does not give the increase, it avails to nothing. That's why Paul said on another occasion, when I was with you, I determined not to know anything among you except Christ and Him crucified. I have nothing to offer in and of myself. But we preach the Word of God. Then we look back and we were there a while ago. 
But in chapter 4 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, No, it's not about us, so to speak, but in verse 7, chapter 4, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. God is glorified through those fishermen that God called to be an apostle. God is glorified by those who do not have the great talents or the great ability. It's not dependent upon that, folks. It's not dependent upon how pretty we wear our hair or whether we have any hair. It's dependent upon whether or not the Spirit of God is working in the power of God to transform men's lives. That's what is important. That the Word of God is being displayed and spoken. Paul talked about the great hardships that he endured and the fact that he had such hardships that he despaired even of life. But he said all of this happened to us in order that we might understand that it is God who raises the dead. That his strength, that his power had to come from God. You see. You don't have enough abilities, you poor thing. Just go sit in a corner and sulk. (laughs) Ryan and I, I'm going to be a little personal here, Ryan and I have both spoken with one another of how hard it is for us to, to do public speaking. It's still difficult for us, you know. And speaking of myself, I'm not particularly good at it, but... Amazingly, God takes these jars of clay and communicates His Word through us. And Paul said, when I am weak, then am I made strong. God is pleased to work through our weakness so that He gets all of the glory. God didn't let Moses off the hook, did He? when Moses complained of his inabilities. And what is God calling you to do? What, what, what is the Lord urging you to do in obedience to Christ? And what thoughts are you listening to that you ought not to be listening to? Is there a stronghold that's been built up in your life that I can't do this because I'm, I'm weak, I'm not able blah, blah, blah? Are you taking those thoughts and making them captive? I'm going to be obedient to the Word of God. I'm going to follow through what the Scripture says and I'm going to be obedient to Him whether I feel like it or whether I do not feel like it. You see? That's another another area, right? We can be, oh, there's too many things happening to us. My circumstances are too too bad, and we can we can point to to people, things, and our our events in our lives that are causing us not to be productive, folks. We live in a fallen world. It's always going to be that way, you know. But Paul says we're called to be faithful in season and out of season. <laughs> We are to learn to be content with what comes our way. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We're to submit ourselves to God. We, we preach a lot here about the sovereignty of God. Do you really believe He's sovereign? We sang this morning 
in one of the hymns we sang in that, that God sends the trials and the blessings our way. Paul says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Whether, whatever comes my way, God has called us to be faithful. Whether or not we have a lot of talents or just a little bit of talents. Submit yourselves to the Lord. And those who humble themselves before the mighty hand of God will be exalted. But you've got to get off the couch in order to see God work. And then about, what, here's another area. Well, you don't know how much anxiety I have in my life. Philippians chapter 4 tells us that we are to pray about everything and not to be anxious or not to worry about anything. But with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And what's the promise there? That God will give us that peace that surpasses all understandings and He will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So, again, what do we do? I'm anxious, I'm worried, I'm all torn up, I'm nervous. That thought is running in your head. What do you do with it? Oh, I'm undone. No, you apply the Scriptures to that anxiety. The command of God, now He can't say this to an unbeliever. I can't say to a pagan, don't be anxious. But I can say that to a Christian, do not be anxious. Why? Because we have, in our text that we read this morning, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. You see, the power of God is with us. The... the, the the very person of Christ is indwelling in us as He give us, gives us the promise that I am abiding with you. The fullness of the Spirit of God lives within us who are children of God. And we have the very mind of Christ, the Scripture says. Take captives these thoughts, bring them under subjection, and make those thoughts obedient to Christ rather than obedience to those harmful thoughts. Hear the Word of God instead of hearing the voice of self or the voice of the evil one. The psalmist said, he took those thought captives as he prayed in Psalm 42, Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you so disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise Him. Trust the Lord. Hope in God. Apply the Word of God. He is the help of my countenance and my God. You're long-faced. You're sad. He can make your countenance joyful by spending time with Him, by committing this to Him. Trust in the Lord. Examine those reasons why you're anxious and Pray about it. Another very area where we we get defeated, we know the things that we need to do, and the thoughts within us says, oh, just take life at ease and don't do anything. We've been studying Titus, and next week we'll get into these verses where the Apostle Paul quotes a Greek philosopher, Epimenides. And he says, 
in that particular text as he's referring to the Cretans, he says, they're all liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul says, I think that that person spoke correctly. They are indeed those things, you see. Sometimes we're just lazy. We don't want to do what we need to do because the thoughts that come into our, our head, it's, it's, it's more expedient for me to take my ease and my pleasure and to serve self. So what do we do? We put off things and we procrastinate and then things get worse. when the Scripture is telling us that we're to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Get to work. Do what God has called you to do. Paul said that to the church at Corinth because they had grown laps in their promise to give to the poor saints in Jerusalem. He said, no, you've made this promise. Go ahead and do uh, what you have promised that you would do as, as a matter of generosity, not grudgingly or, or that you feel that you are under obligation, but take this as an opportunity to serve the Lord. And then finally, so much... So many of our thoughts debilitate us because we simply do not believe God. We do not trust God. We listen to the thoughts of ourselves or the thoughts of the evil one that places these thoughts in our mind and he you see, He wants to take us out of the game. Sometimes we take us ourselves out of the game, do we not? When we, by our own flesh, are deceived and we lust after things that we ought not to lust after, the book of James says that we're drawn away by our own desires and are enticed. You see? By our own thoughts we cripple ourselves. We're taken out of the game of serving in the kingdom of God rather than what? Taking up the shield of faith, the armor that we possess in Christ. We take up the shield of faith in order that we might quench the fiery darts of the evil one by trusting in what God said rather than what these fleeting, silly thoughts that come into our mind that desire to cripple us to trust God with all of our heart, to not lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct our paths. Jesus said, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. We are to examine our thoughts. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8 says that we are to think upon those things that are true, those things which are noble, those things that are just, pure, lovely, and of a good report, rather than things that would drag us down. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, a very familiar verse. Verse 1 talks about how we are to be living sacrifices, presenting our our life as a a living sacrifice to the Lord. And in verse 2 of Romans chapter 12, it says that we are not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed. There it is. That's, that's, 
Thinking about your thoughts. That's renewing your mind. Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Mulling over your thoughts. Bringing those thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In order that what? That we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. But all these thoughts, they come into our minds, don't they? What are you doing with your thoughts? Are they crippling you? Are they taking you out of service in the kingdom of God, weighing you down like those many granules of sand? Giving you a burden which you cannot bear? Or are you preaching to those thoughts, applying the Word of God? Are you breaking down those arguments? Are you breaking down that stronghold? that is aimed against you. Where should our thoughts be? I'm going to close with a few verses from Jeremiah. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. You remember how the false teachers at Corinth were always concerned about themselves, puffing up their flesh, desiring to be seen by men? In like manner, Jeremiah says in verse 23, this is what the Lord says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. The answer is not in manward wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. It's not about how tough you are or how strong you are. Let not the rich man glory in his wisdom. doesn't make any difference how rich you are. But verse 24, Let him who glories glory in this. This is where our thoughts should be. Glory in the fact that we're seeking God, that He, God, understands and knows me. That my thoughts, that my desires, and my will are upon the Lord. I'm not glorying in my looks, who I am, who I'm not, the abilities that I have. I'm not being weighed down by my anxiety. I'm not letting circumstances dictate me. But this is what I'm concerned about. This is what we are to glory in. That God understands and knows me. Why today is the evangelical church, why today are Christians so weak and inept. This is one of the reasons why we are not seeking God. We are worried about programs and plans and all these things when we need to be concerned about and desiring to know Him, to understand Him, to commune with Him, that our thoughts are pleasing to Him 
And we don't just come in on Sunday morning, profess faith, la-di-da, and our thoughts are far from Him for the rest of the week. Who are you? What do you want in life? Do you want to please Him? Do you want to be obedient to Him? Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. What should you glory in? You should glory in this, that God understands me and knows me. The latter part of that verse, for in these things God says, I delight in. You want to please God? Know God. Understand God. Seek God. Take every thought captive and make it obedient unto Christ. Let us pray.